I'm going to read 1 through 9. Um, and if you want to turn there, uh, Romans 10. <clears throat> Beginning at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I want to primarily focus on verses 6 through 8, where he talks about the voice of faith in the heart versus that of the law. The law-gospel distinction is a very important one to understand in the Christian life. Um, To go wrong here is to rob ourselves of a great deal of the joy in our journey. Ultimately, to go wrong here is to miss heaven. And so it is something that I think is, is... important enough that we need to talk about it. Um, Luther, in his commentary on the Galatians, he warns about this, and he says, I warn each of you, and especially such as be directors of the conscience. And isn't that everybody? (laughs) I mean, we, we are directors of our children's consciences. We are directors of our own consciences, if nothing else. That you exercise yourselves in study, reading, meditation, and prayer, so as you may be able to instruct and comfort both your own and others' consciences in the time of temptation, and to bring them back from the law to grace, from active or working righteousness to the passive or received righteousness, in a word, from Moses to Christ. And I think that's exactly what Paul is attempting to do in this passage. He wants to see Israel saved, but there's a problem. They are both ignorant and rebellious. They are ignorant of the righteousness of God and what it really requires of them. And they are rebellious in their rejection of the righteousness that has already been provided for them. Very briefly, Paul reminds us here that the law of Moses can only say, do and live. In Leviticus 18, it reads, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 20 says, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Ezekiel 18 tells us, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The law is not gracious. It is not gracious at all. It cannot be. It is inexorable. It is unbending in its demands. That is the nature of law. You don't bend law, you break it. It says to us, do and live. 
don't do and die. The law requires of us a perfect righteousness on the one hand, and if we cannot provide it, a complete satisfaction for our sins on the other. The law requires perfect holiness in head, heart, and hand. Because of this, the scripture condemns all as unrighteous and under the wrath of God. Paul said earlier in the book of Romans, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Then a few verses later, he says, and the way of peace they have not known. This is precisely what he is accusing the Jews of in this passage. But he goes on and he says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. The law was given to be, as it were, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us the futility of attempting to procure peace with God through our own actions. So that is where we find Israel. They were blindly going about to establish their own righteousness, as were all of us once, before grace found us. So that is the voice of the law. Pretty simple. Provide me a perfect righteousness, and you will live. Fail to do so, and you will die. Any questions? But there is an intercessor, one who has stepped between us and the law and made an end to its demands. Our text says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In order for there to be any hope for the sinner, the law must be satisfied. Its demands must be met. The sinner must come out of its grip or there can be no hope for him. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. There is one that kept the law perfectly on my behalf. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The husband that I used to be married to has died, and I can now be free to marry another. Christ has provided me a perfect righteousness. He has become to me Jehovah, said you, the Lord, our righteousness. There is a righteousness that is by faith and not of the law, at least not of my keeping of the law. He kept it perfectly, fulfilled all righteousness, and finished the work that he was sent to do. The temporary nature of the old covenant was finished and completed in him. So, that is the first thing that faith says. Much more could be said on this, uh, but I'm going to forbear for now. It is enough to know that Christ finished the work. He finished all that the law required. And that by so doing, he ended the administration of righteousness by the law. But notice, there are two things that the law requires of us. First, a perfect righteousness. The second, a perfect satisfaction for sin. And it is this that I want you to notice particularly in the verses before us. In Romans 6, he says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. 
Or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead? But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now what does this mean? First, why ascend into heaven? What did Christ ascending into heaven to the Father tell us? It told us that he had a perfect righteousness. He sits on the right hand of God the Father as our representative head. And it as such, and it is as such that he ascended into heaven. He had fulfilled all righteousness and was given the kingdom as the price of his obedience. He was the second Adam. And where the first fell, he succeeded and secured forever a place for himself and his people after him. I like to say there is a man in the glory. I don't know if you guys have noticed that or not. But that's one of my favorite thoughts in prayer is that there is a man sitting on a throne in heaven. And he is fully man. When Christ came to the earth, the scripture tells us that he emptied himself. When he did what he did on the earth... He did it as our representative. He did it as a man. And if you think, um, there were two times when a voice from heaven came and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The first was at his baptism, at the outset of his ministry. The second was at the transfiguration, at the end of his ministry. And I believe that what you see in those two instances is God the Father saying, This man is perfect. This one is a spotless lamb. He started his ministry there, and he ended his ministry there. I think what you see on the Mount of Transfiguration is not the glory of God shining forth through him, but the glory of Christ, the man. And the reason I say that, and this is a side, I'm I'm kind of going off my notes here a little bit, but the reason I say that is if you think about those three on the, on the mount, Peter looked at them and said, we need to build three tabernacles. There was no difference in the glory. Abraham and Moses, or Elijah, was Moses and Elijah, Abraham and Elijah, I don't know. Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Were glorified. That was their glorified state, and they were shining like the sun. Christ was glorified in that Instance, And I believe what you, this is, I don't know, I, I think that he could have ascended to heaven at that moment. He was accepted. God was saying, you have finished all that you were to do. Now, he had another work to do. That was the righteousness part of his work. The rest of it was the payment for the sin. And if you look at the life of Christ after that, everything he did took him to the cross. Every step he took took him a step closer and closer and closer to the cross. He came down off that mountain and went to the cross. <clears throat> so that's a topic for another time. <clears throat> but I mention it only to say that at the moment, he could have ascended to the Father. Uh, he could have taken that throne, but it was only part of the work that he came to do. So I think that is what is meant by his ascending to, into heaven. He was ascending to present to God a perfect righteousness. Christ has done it. We are not to look for it again, for that would be to bring him down. Uh, The question then is, who will provide for us a perfect righteousness? 
Secondly, <clears throat> the question <clears throat> was asked, who will descend into the deep? Now, what is the deep? And the apostle makes it clear with the words that follow to bring him up from the dead. And why did he die? To make a satisfaction for our sin. He was the spotless lamb, but he must be slain in order to purchase for himself a people. It was a perfect sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. Isaiah tells us, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we deem him we, yet did we deem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And once again, I, I wish I had more time to dig into that. But again, I think the glorious truth that's putting forth here is that this question is, who will pay for my sins? The righteousness which is of faith speaketh not, or speaketh on this wise, and say not in your heart. Now here's the rub. If we understand what the law says to us, do and live, and that the soul that sinneth it shall die, then we have a problem. And the natural questions to ask are, who shall ascend to heaven with a perfect righteousness, and who will die to satisfy my debt? But the righteousness which is of faith says to us, Hush. Hush. Look yonder. Do you see that hill? Do you see that bright shining one? He is transfigured. And he will soon ascend to glory. He has a perfect righteousness. Do you see yonder on that mount, that spectacle, a man hanging on a cross, bloody and beaten? Do you hear him cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It is finished. All is paid, and it is all for you. There is nothing more to do. In fact, even to ask the question is to bring him down from above and to bring him up from the grave again, to undo all that he has done. Hush, do not speak so. Only believe. But what saith this righteousness? It saith, the word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. <clears throat> it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that is the gospel. If you sit here tonight and you wonder, how will I ever please God? Perhaps one of you young people have thought that. How will I ever, ever overcome my sin? There is hope for you, but it will not be found within you. You must look up to heaven where there sits a man enthroned in glory. You must look down to the empty grave where once a perfect lamb was slain. You must only believe. He has done it all for you. There is nothing left for you to do but to rest in what he has done. But I want to say something to you who have believed as well. This say not in your hearts is still for you. For often we find ourselves back here asking these same questions. 
you might call it as Bunyan did, the secret inclining to Adam the first. Um, but it, as, as, Luther, as, as Luther said, of the utmost importance, that we learn to discern the voice of the law and the voice of faith, or the voice of the gospel. We can fall into this and say, who will ascend in our hearts when we begin to look at our works as something more than a service of love to a loving father? We can fall into this and say, who will descend into the deep when we feel the weight of our sin and draw back from God and in some subtle way begin to try to repair the relationship with our own hands? Did you stumble this week? Perhaps you were angry. Maybe you spoke harshly to someone. Perhaps someone spoke ill of you and you responded badly. Perhaps you spoke ill of someone else. Perhaps you've just been floating along and the world has allured you away into some entertainment that has left you empty and dry. Have you left your Bible unread upon the shelf? Have you lied? Have you misled someone? Have you entertained lustful thoughts? Has pride been in your heart? Envy? Have you given in to sin? What will be your response? This is one of those things I think that really is important for us to get a hold of. Because do we, in our failures, find ourselves saying, well, I'll just try harder. I haven't read my Bible, so I'll catch up. I haven't done well, so I'll do better. Or maybe I've done something really bad. I can't pray. I can't go to the Father right now. Or even worse, maybe, I've already blown it. What's the point? I've already messed up. I'll just keep going. That is to say, I'm going to bring him back up from the dead because I'm going to pay for my sin. In some small way, in some subtle way, we can find ourselves right there. And the apostle says, say not in your heart. Who will descend into the deep? Christ has paid for that sin already. And the flip side is true as well. Have we had self-righteous thoughts? Have we been proud and arrogant? Have we looked down at our brother? Have we quietly excommunicated someone because they're not matching up to our standard of what we think they should be doing? And again, who are we to judge another? Are we going to rise up into heaven? Do we have a righteousness that will mount the skies and get us there? We do not. And so it's a good thought. It's a good thing to consider even as we go to prayer tonight, which voice are we listening to? Which voice is speaking in our hearts? Is it the one that says, do and live? Or is it the one that says, it is finished? It is finished.